The title of my sermon this morning is Grace Above Entitlement. Uh, grace we think of as a gift, and uh, I came across an article not too long ago uh, about what not to buy your wife. We as, we as men, I'm the chief of these sinners, uh, struggle with buying my wife gifts. Uh, so this, the writer of this article gave a, gave a list. Uh, so gentlemen, pay attention. Um, number one, don't buy anything that plugs in. Anything that plugs in is seen as utilitarian. Uh, don't buy clothing that involves sizes. Uh, I don't know how you buy clothing without sizes, but don't buy clothing that involves sizes because you have a 1 in 7,000 chance of getting that correct. The other 6,999 times, you're going to be wrong. Um, avoid anything that's useful. So things like the silver polish that you, that you saw on TV. Uh, she will not appreciate that. Don't buy anything that involves weight loss. Um, the, the, uh, she'll perceive the six-month membership to a diet center as a suggestion that she's overweight. Uh, don't buy jewelry uh, because the jewelry that she wants you can't afford and the jewelry you can afford she doesn't want. Finally, don't spend too much She'll say something like, how do you think we're going to afford this? Don't spend too little because then she'll think, is that all I'm worth? Uh, being a good or even a great gift giver is a difficult thing. Uh, it's something I've really struggled with. My wife makes a list and early on in our marriage or even when we were dating, she would make a list for me and, and during that time I would try and be coy or, uh, or uh, try, and, try and go outside of the lines in which she drew, just buy me something on this list, and it would always fail. It failed every time. So now I've learned that when she makes a list, I just buy the list. I buy everything on the list. <laughs> I can't go wrong at that point. Sola gratia, one of the greatest theological and biblical ideas is one of the th greatest theological and biblical ideas that it ever expressed in scripture. This is the final sola in our series. As I've studied this, it's, it's really interesting to me how each one of these solas are so intertwined with one another. Sola Cristo is kind of the uh, glue in which, in which everything is held together. Sola Fide, as Dave preached last week, faith alone, and, and, and this morning, sola gratia, grace alone, the three of these together bring forth sola deo gloria, that we bring every, all glory goes to God. And you can see how even sola scriptura being the standard by which we judge everything by is such an important topic in this as well. One of the benefits of the, of the Reformation, though, is the history behind it. Uh, I'm sure all the, all the other uh, men that have brought forth uh, the word in this series have given a history lesson, and, 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 and that's awesome. Our school systems talk to us about history so, we're, so that we're not doomed to repeat uh, all the negative aspects of history that we, that we learn in school. 
Some things, though, need to be repeated, and this is true of the Reformation. When Martin Luther's convictions, uh, convictions overwhelmed him to the point that he nailed the 95 Theses to the doors of Wittenberg Church, his point was not to split the church, not to split the Roman Catholic Church, but to start a conversation, a conversation to reform it. To have this conversation within the church with its leaders to show how he was interpreting the scriptures as teaching something contradictory to what the church was teaching at the time. This was the point of the reformers. But when the Roman Catholic Church refused to have this conversation, the reformers had no choice but to split. This is also true of Village Bible Church. You see, we need to be reforming our theology all the time. Our theology is not set in stone. Our theology should always be matching up as closely as possible with scripture. That means if our theology is wrong, it needs to be molded into what scripture is telling us, and not what man thinks. Otherwise, we won't know where the lines in the sand are. We won't know the hills to die on. We'll be arguing over less insignificant theology and doctrines than the ones that we've covered in this series. This morning, though, as we uh, this morning, though, as we talk about this last yet just as significant sola of grace, I first want to give uh, some perspective of why this is so important. And Paul does this in our passage this morning. So let us stand for the reading of God's word. Then I'll ask for a blessing on our time. Our, our passage is found in Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing his letter to the Ephesians, says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, but is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Father God, Lord, I thank you uh, for your passage this morning. I, pray, I thank you for uh, the scripture that you've laid before us. I thank you for this uh, doctrine of grace that is um, so prevalent throughout scripture. Lord, I pray, uh, as Bill did, that you would uh, speak boldly through me this morning. Lord, that I would get out of the way of the message that, uh, that you've laid on my heart. Lord, that you would get glory from 
all of this, Lord, that the uh, message would be set forth on the people's heart as well. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we as people are incredibly selfish. Uh, we all young and old. Uh, from the moment of conception, David says in his psalm, to the time of our, of our death. Uh, we're always trying to manipulate virtually every situation for our own benefit. Uh, now, this doesn't happen 100% of the time, but, but we can see this clearly throughout Scripture. We can see this clearly throughout our lives that we're always trying to better our own position. Our selfishness leads to thoughts and actions of entitlement. Dictionary.com uh, defines entitlement as the right to guaranteed benefits under a government program. That looks exactly how we act in the church. That we, even we as Christians feel entitled to God's grace. That we feel entitled to what God owes us because what we're bringing to the table. Most of us, if not all, feel justified in the actions that we bring to the table. We bring these in either on a little saucer because we haven't done a lot of good works, or we bring them on a great big platter because we have done a lot of good works. We try to earn our salvation through these works. Uh, if I just give this sermon, if I am a Sunday school teacher, if I hand out bulletins in the back or serve communion, God will be pleased with me. I've, I have at times had a hard time saying no when asked to serve in specific areas because deep down there's something inside me that wants the glory for what's about to happen. I want the recognition for what's going to happen and not give that glory to God. I think, is, is God going to be pleased with me now? Even those in our evangelical circles have traces of works being a key or one of many keys to our salvation. And this is, uh, Paul is addressing this in our passage today. This entitlement leads to three actions, and we can see these in our passage. Uh, the first area that this leads to is death. We are all sinners, and, and, this, and that sin demands a punishment. This sin has separated us from God in, in such profound ways that we can't even comprehend. This punishment is death. Uh, this has manifested itself first in our spiritual condition. Um, we are not alive and we cannot, we can't do anything to earn our way to God. We can't do anything to make strives towards God. And, and many uh, young people, as, as I've worked with student ministry over the last two years, have a hard time comprehending that. And I don't think that's just young people. I think that's old people as well. We think that we can make these strives towards God in things that we do. So let me illustrate this for you for a second. Uh, most of us have been to a funeral. We've, we've had a parent die or a grandparent, an aunt or uncle. Some of us children. More than 11 years ago, 
my brother Jeff was in a car accident on his way back to his home from, from DeKalb to his home in Hinckley. A person had crossed the center line and, and there was a head-on collision just west, of, uh, just west of Cortland on Route 38. My brother was killed in an instant. I can assure you that there was a level of devastation within our family. I lost an older brother. My parents lost a son. At no point during his visitation, when over a thousand people came through the visitation line, did I expect that my brother was going to sit up and console any of those people that had lost a friend. On the morning of his funeral, at no point did I think that my brother was going to sit up and console his young wife or his two young children. At no point was he going to respond to the gospel message that my sister Jessica so profoundly presented that morning. He was dead. He could not do anything for himself. He couldn't carry his casket to the gravesite. And yet we, being dead spiritually, think that we have the capability of making any strive towards God. Man cannot make or strive towards God under his or her own power. Just as a person that is dead cannot, under his or her own power, do anything for themselves. Because we're dead. God is always making the first strive towards us. Our sin also leads, uh, leads us to walk and follow Satan. You see, because we are dead spiritually, we have a natural inclination to not follow God. That's always our first inclination, is to not follow God. Even we as Christians have this living within us now. We can see that because we sin all the time, and it's so easy for us. Others have convinced themselves that there's multiple ways to God or multiple religions and way, ways to get to, to earn God's favor. Jesus, though, tells his disciples in John 14, 6, that I am the way the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me, Jesus says. So we can see that Jesus clearly contradicts that thought. The interesting thing to me, though, is that we in the church are surprised when non-believers act, don't act the same, same way we do. They don't have the same convictions that we do because they don't have the Holy Spirit living within us. And yet, we're surprised when we're in public and we hear foul language coming out of their mouth. I work in a place where foul language is used all the time, and, and yet sometimes I'm surprised by it. Why, why, why do they talk this way? How come they act this way? Why do they do this or that on the weekends? It's because we used to, and in some ways still do, but they, being non-Christians, non-believers, follow the prince of the power of error. They follow Satan in what they do. This doesn't mean that they worship Satan, but simply means that they don't worship the Trinity as the one true God. As we look at how people act both in and outside the church, we at times have this idea that they are being tormented or uh, tormented by demons or Satan. And while this is true, this, we see this throughout Scripture, we see it throughout church history, that people have 
there's, there's been demon possession and things of that nature. I think most of the time, that's not the case. C.S. Lewis, in his fictional uh, uh, story, uh, The Screwtape Letters, uh, had this to say. Uh, Uncle Screwtape, uh, being a chief demon, is writing to his nephew, Wormwood, and says, indeed, the safest road to hell is a gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. You see, it's far easier to get somebody that's not believe that's a non-believer, or somebody that's on the fringe of possibly being a believer or not being a believer, to simply have them be disinterested. They may go to church, but they're not interested in what the message is. They may go to church and and may sing the words of the songs, but they're not worshiping God from their hearts. Satan doesn't need you to worship him for you to go to hell, but simply not to recognize Christ as your Savior. Thus, we should not be surprised when we and others carry out the sinful desires of our lives. When we begin to put this all in, in perspective, we all do this still. We put our own selfishness in, what, in front of what God has commanded us to do. God has commanded us for us to be holy. We're not capable of this on our own. Yet we do and we do and we do things that are contradictory to what his commands are. The best place to see this is in the lives of our children. My kids are sitting in the back. My son Noah's all over the place and driving me crazy up here with my ADD. But... But children are the most selfish people in our society. Why? Because from the time of birth, they can't do anything for themselves. We have to raise them. We nurture them into the, into the young men and women that they're becoming. At, at my house, this is most prevalent around Christmas time. Uh, it's, it's interesting turning on Nickelodeon or Disney Channel, and, and they're... And they're uh, they're putting on the ads for the different, um, uh, for the different toys and, and things of that nature. And so what in, in, inevitably what, what happens is, is Becky's preparing lists for Christmas presents or something like that. And the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, I want that. So over the last few years, it's happened so often that Becky and I started playing as well. And before, they could, before it could come out of their mouth, we would shout, I want that regardless of what it was. So a Barbie, Barbie would come on the TV and I would shout out, I want that. And my daughter would get angry with me and be mad for a minute. We walk and carry out the sinful desires of our lives though. When somebody wrongs us in some way, we have this hatred, this anger that starts welling up within us. Jesus though says on the Sermon on the Mount that this is the same as murder. When that good-looking man or woman is on TV or crosses our path when we're out of the store and we start to manipulate these thoughts in our minds, this is the same as adultery, Jesus says in the same passage 
on the Sermon on the Mount. In all this sinfulness, we are essentially saying to God, I know better than you. I am fine. I don't really need you right now. When, though, it comes time to pay the payment for that, we bring these platters of good deeds that we've done as payment. This is much the same way how people have gotten themselves into financial ruin. We take out the, the plastic in our, in our wallets. and we, I heard a stat not too long ago that said that, that Americans spend $1.35 for every dollar that they earn. That's insanity. We go to the furniture store and we buy furniture 90 days, same as cash. And yet we don't pay it off in 90 days then there's an astronomical interest rate that we have to pay for that, for that furniture. We do this with our cars. We have a car for a couple of years, and now the new model's out, and it's got some more bells and whistles. So we trade in our car that works perfectly fine, absolutely nothing wrong with it. We trade that, that car in for one that has uh, higher payments, but we can't afford those payments, so what do we do? We extend the payments a couple of years so that now we can pay for that. The way that we do that is by claiming bankruptcy. None of us, no one can keep make, living a lifestyle like that and pay the payments. We claim bankruptcy and want all of those debts forgiven. Now, if you think that this doesn't happen in the church, let me assure you, your preacher this morning has done those same things. God, though, does not work in this way. God demands a life of perfection. And because we cannot meet that standard, sorry, uh, because we cannot meet that standard, we need a substitute in our place, and that substitute is Jesus Christ. Only when we put faith in him Will those debts be forgiven? Paul, though, before he gets to the point of grace this morning, wants you to recognize what your standing is. Remember, he's writing to the church, the church at Ephesus, and he's writing about their past and how what their standing with God was without Christ. He said, you once were one of these. When we begin to really look at what the driving force was behind the Reformation, this is at the very heart. Martin Luther started to read the book, the book of Romans with new eyes. As we learned from Dave last week, that the righteous will live by faith. Paul goes on to say in the following verses that none of us are good. And that's what he's saying again in this passage that we were once one of these people, that we have zero good in us. What the church was doing, though, was selling indulgences so that people would escape purgatory sooner or get to heaven sooner. As he began to read more of what Paul was saying in Romans, Luther became more and more convinced that at the very least this practice was wrong but more likely sending people straight to hell.
Luther found himself at odds with, the church, with what the church was perpetuating as the truth of God when you can't find that anywhere in Scripture. As Luther began to understand that, first, the Scriptures are completely true, as we learned with Sola Scriptura, his convictions about what the Catholic Church was teaching, particularly on how tradition was on par with Scripture, and how they came up with some of the doctrines of the time, such as indulgences. He felt that they could differ on many subjects, but salvation is not one of them. This is why the Sola series is so important, because now we can see clearly what those hills to die on are. And these are, these are five of them, for sure. I imagine Luther in his study agonizing over the scriptures and looking at how awful he really is. Agonizing over how one begins to be in right standing with God. Paul has not only told us how bad we really are, but also the answer to our problem here in the following verses. Paul tells us the answer to our problem of sin and separation from God is that God gives grace. Now, grace simply means unmerited favor. He says, I believe it starts in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The old Rolaids commercial, um, the old Rolaids commercial, there was a jingle that was, that was, how do you spell relief? I don't know how to sing it. I, I'm, I'm not, I don't, I don't know how old that is, but, but I remember the commercial. But how do you spell relief from your spiritual condition? You spell it, but God. God though, did not wait until man started striving towards him. You can turn your page back to Ephesians 1.4, and you can see that the but God happened before the foundations of the world. You can turn back to the very first words of Scripture, but God happened before Genesis 1.1. This get grace, this free gift, my friends, is the means by which we are saved. Without this gift, there would be no salvation because we, that means all of humanity, do not deserve this kind of love and gift from God. We are no more deserving of this grace than your unsaved neighbor next door. That's what makes it grace. This was where Luther was having his problem with the church. The priests were the ones who were dispensing of this grace. Paul, though, does not seem to agree with this, agree with the church in this aspect, and that is where Martin Luther wanted to start the conversation. The problem is that if you take away the authority of the church and the means by which they're dispensing that grace, 
and people's eternal resting place, how can they gain money? You see, the whole point of all of that was to build an amazingly magnificent and beautiful church. I had the opportunity to visit the Vatican back in the early 2000s, and uh, when I say it's amazingly beautiful, like words don't, that doesn't, that doesn't do it justice. It is bigger than what you can imagine. So when you enter the square outside of the church, uh, there's these colonnades out there, and on top of that, there's statues of saints. And these, these saints are 3.1 meters tall, each of them exactly the same height, roughly 10 feet. And if they were just standing up there looking out, it would be one thing, but each one is leaning in at a specific angle, exactly the same. When you go inside the church, when you go inside St. Peter's Basilica, the ceilings are 100 feet tall. There are statues in there as well, and, and, but they look life-size, yet they're still 3.1 meters tall, each of them exactly the same. Each of them leaning in at exactly the right angle so that it appears that people like John and Peter and Paul are looking down on you. The point is that all of this costs tons and tons of money. The church had to get that money from somewhere. If you take away the authority of the church to dispense their grace and gain that money, that would have never been built. God, though, is the only one who has the power or authority to dispense his grace how he wants at a particular time. Now, he may use you and I to dispense that for him, but he's the only one who has the authority to do so. God's grace is a precious gift. When we begin to think and recognize that God has changed our eternal destiny, destiny, we must treat this as something very, very precious. More precious than any relationship than you, that you have. More precious than my relationship with my wife is this gift of grace. This gift of salvation through grace alone turned the church at the time of Martin Luther upside down. Through the writing of Paul and uh, uh, through the writing of Paul in the letter to the Romans, Luther wrestled with this over many years. You know, at one time, Luther was enrolled in law school. His father wanted him to be a lawyer, and this greatly influenced how he viewed the world. He left law school against his father's wishes, but this certainly played a role in Luther's understanding of the world, both physically and spiritually. Paul says in Romans that we are not justified by our works, but justifi justified apart from them. Also, this salvation does not come from these works, but comes from God. So we must treasure this unmerited gift of grace from God. God's grace also came at a great price. The price that was paid was God's only son. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believe in, believes in him 
should not perish but have eternal life. We as men and women have this idea that we can make this fit into our little box, in our little world, and in the way that we manipulate that all of the time. We cheapen this idea of grace by continuing in our blatant sin. We know that the things that we do are wrong. We know when that anger wells up within us is wrong. We start to plot against that other person. Yet we do it anyway. We cheapen this idea of God's grace again by continuing our blatant sin. But remember that when we call Jesus Lord, Lord simply means owner. In, in Romans, Paul uses the word doulos, which is slave master or owner. So we are slaves to Christ. We don't get to make those decisions about what is right and wrong anymore. We have to consult the owner of our lives, Jesus Christ. We follow, we say we follow what Jesus says in, script, in Scripture, yet we do things that are contradictory to that all the time, and by that we cheapen God's grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the great heroes of World War II, uh, Lutheran pastor, uh, wrote, wrote this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without the requiring of repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living incarnate. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. But cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. How true is that of us today? Two points of application as we conclude. One, live like you have received this gift. If you're a Christian, live like it. God is the one who has done and is doing the work in your life. Stop trying to earn his grace. It's already given to you. Paul says in our passage this morning, for grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man or woman may boast. None of us, no one can boast about that. Live in freedom from your sin, all your sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future, by the precious blood of Christ, as we celebrated this morning. We need to be the one showing the world that there is freedom with this grace. 
Christians need to be the example in the world in which we live, not the ones being the example of how not to live, being the ones caught in the gross sins in which we see in our world. We need to be the ones that, shows that, that show that we are not entitled. And if we're entitled to anything, it's only death and eternal separation from God. Number two, if you are not a true believer, let today be the day of salvation. Don't leave this place without hearing these words, without acting on these words. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, Paul says in Romans 6.23. You see how even this passage, there's the but God. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. There's no greater words than those buts that we find in Scripture. The penalty for our sin is death. But God, God's grace is the free gift that he has given you this morning. Don't be the man who knows that there's a precious treasure in the field and does nothing about it. Doesn't care about it. Doesn't sell everything he owns or she owns to obtain that treasure. That treasure is salvation. If you feel God beckoning you today, don't leave without talking with me or or somebody else here this morning about that. We don't know what the future holds. I didn't know that I was going to lose my brother on that day of his car accident. Again, with such a precious gift of grace, we as Christians cheapen this by doing our will, trying to earn God's favor. We feel entitled to get what we think we deserve rather than looking, rather than looking at looking at God for what he has given us. Remember, we are spiritually bankrupt and we can't do anything to earn that. So, li- so today, live knowing that God loves you despite your sinfulness, despite what you bring or do not bring to the table, because there's nothing you can do, there's nothing that you can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing more that you can do to make God love you more than what he does right now, than what he did, than the way he did before Genesis 1-1. Stop trying to, to do and live, sorry, stop trying to do and live with the confidence knowing that it is done. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you again for this word that you've placed on my heart this morning. Lord, let us live knowing that you have done this work in our lives. There's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. Lord, let us live in confidence knowing that you loved us so much before the foundations of the world that you knew at that time that Jesus was going to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, let us take this to heart and leave this place and live in a world 
which is so spiritually bankrupt, a world that so desperately needs to hear your voice. Lord, let us be that voice in the silence. Lord, let us leave this place knowing that we are not entitled to anything except for death and destruction. Let us leave this place resting in the but gods of Scripture. Father, I pray for blessing over this congregation that we would be the light and the darkness. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.